you know, this, this semester our series has been Tell Me About the God You Don't Believe In. Uh, tonight, uh, we're going to grow this group right down to about 15 people because this week I'm talking about does God um, demean women? Is Christianity bad for women? It's another way you could put it. Um, Rebecca McLaughlin says, is Christianity, you know, she points out that the, the, the Christian church has been majority female since the very beginning and still is today around the world. Always has been majority female. Um, but is that, does that mean that Christianity is like a, a, a bad boyfriend that women just can't quit? Um, sometimes it feels like that. Um, I, I thought that was a, a helpful way of putting it. Um, so we're going to talk about that. And then next week, uh, my, my dear friend Sam Alberry is going to come speak about why does God care who we sleep with? And he's going to address same-sex attraction um, uh, in that as well. So between this week and next week, we got some, some really, I think, some of the most important questions to deal with if you would um, hope Christianity could be a credible and a plausible um, faith in the 21st century. You can't skirt those two issues. So uh, we're going to talk about women tonight, and he's going to talk about all those other issues next week, and um, that's going to be great. Um, so when we think about this issue of women and the church, uh, I, I think where you have to start is the church has to own the many, many examples, both today and throughout history, that have contributed to this serious credibility gap, okay? And it's all the more grievous when you see the way Jesus himself treated women. The contrast between how women have been treated by the church and still are in many cases, and the way Jesus treated women is often very stark. And we have to own that. And sadly, even with a renewed concern for justice in these areas, I'm thinking about Me Too and Church Too and things such as like that, and even when earthly justice is carried out to the best of our ability, I literally was at a meeting for six hours uh, dealing with a church discipline situation surrounding these issues. Even when you do the best job you can, often you have a profound sense of how far short human justice feels. Um, I remember years ago, uh, a friend of mine was murdered by his son-in-law. It was awful. He was one of the pastors at the church. It was gruesome. It was premeditated. And I remember sitting through the trial with his two sons who were college students. And I remember when the verdict was read, and the sentence was read, now I know some of you probably have different opinions on this, but the sentence that the family thought was just was the death penalty, and that was handed out. It was later overturned, but it was handed out. But here's the point, guilty, death sentence, nobody cheered. In that courtroom, people only wept. It was the best that they could hope for, and you were struck in that moment with a profound sense of it's not enough. It doesn't fix it, right? So I think we need to have the weight of that with this issue um, really before us as we consider this. Um, but not only does the problem come from 
history and church practice, and we might say, well, they're just not living in line with what the Bible says. Uh, There are a lot of weird things that the Bible says that cause people concerns as well about this issue. And like I said, even though the church from the very beginning till now has been majority female, some have wondered whether it's actually good for women at all. Uh, Wendy Alsup has her book that I found very helpful, literally called, Is the Bible Good for Women? It's a, it's a good book. It's one that you may be interested to read. I'm gonna reference it a little later. Um, so when we, when we think about this issue, um, n- another person who's been very helpful is Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, her book, Confronting Christianity, her podcast, Confronting Christianity, I, I think are both really excellent. She's dear, dear friends with Sam Alberry, who's gonna preach next week. I was listening to uh, her episode she did recently on friendship, and she had Sam uh, on the podcast with her, and it was so sweet she hadn't told him until he got on her podcast that she had dedicated her new book on friendship to him, and that was just really sweet. Um, anyway, the, um, she, her chapter in Confronting Christianity, she starts out with this Harry Potter illustration, and here I'm gonna try and say this, because I think it's very helpful. There, there is a point Well, as you're going through the movies, going through the books, the question of whose side is Snape really on is is a serious question, right? And there comes a moment when one of the main characters says these words, Snape, please. If you know, you know. Like that was, that's, when that happens, and then what happens right after that, like you were freaking out. I know you were, right? You got this to look forward to, freaking out. (laughs) But later, later, there's something that happens where you find out what really was the meaning of those words. Sometimes you need the big picture story to understand the really upsetting things that by themselves need a context to make sense. I think that's a good way to think about this issue because you really need the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end to really understand some of the weird passages, particularly the weird passages about women. And so we're not going to start with culture or gender studies or even the failure of the church throughout history. We're going to start with the big story. That means we're going to look at the creation um, briefly here in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to pick up from verse 18. Verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, if you've been tracking in the story, and I imagine a lot of you have read this Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, you know that what's been going all through the creation account as a refrain is, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and now all of a sudden, jarring, like screeching break statement is not good for the man to be alone. Particularly jarring because sin hasn't entered the world yet. So how can things be not good? But there it is. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So you understand, what God knew it wasn't good for man to be alone, but he brings Adam to an experiential sense that it's not good and that there's none that really is a fit. Naming in the Bible is not just a, putting an arbitrary label on something. It really is seeking to understand the essence of a thing. And, and thus, the naming here is what we call part of the creation mandate, and the mandate in particular for science, trying to understand the creation that God has made, right? But he comes to realize there is no fit helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, and here he breaks out into poetry, guys, in case you didn't know this. This at last, at last, you see the longing that God has brought him to? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this a little bit. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for even these stories that are rather strange at times, but have so much to teach us. We pray that you would help us now. Send your spirit to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So the question, of course, comes, why male and female? If you start with creation, why male and female? I mean, God made a number of creatures that reproduce asexually. He certainly could have done that. Why male and female? Was it a mistake? I don't think so. I think we get a hint in the strange description. It is strange. The description of God making the woman out of the side of man and in Adam's reaction when he sees her. Now, I, I love the hymn writer and poet William Cooper, C-O-W-P-E-R. We named our oldest after him. Um, he points out and had this whole theory that, as you see here, the first human speech, the human speech that we have before the fall is poetry. He thought that mankind was created to speak in poetry. And that when we speak in poetry, we actually touch something primordial. Much like C.S. Lewis and Tolkien talk about the true myth that Christianity is that underlies every other great story. He thought that same kind of thing here about speech. And that is true. When Adam sees her, he says, at last, he recognizes she is like me, yet she is gloriously, wonderfully different. And this is awesome. And he's thrilled. Okay? Do you understand that? She's both like him and also gloriously different. And the question is, why? Well, here's what Rebecca McLaughlin suggests. Perhaps a relational God who is love, God, Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity, in relationship from all beginning. Relationship is not something that developed in God's being or developed over time. 
He always has been eternally Father, Son, Spirit, three in one Trinity. God has always been relational even before he created anything. Perhaps a relational God who is love could not be truly imaged by a solitary human. God's image emerges not just from our rationality, like many have thought, but also from our relationships. The God who exists in utter intimacy, which is a good way to think of the Trinity, with love across difference, at the core of his being, creates image bearers who are of the same essence but different, and calls them into one flesh intimacy. What about that word helper, though? That's been a troubling one for many people. It's important to note, it's a word that's most often used of God himself. Thus, it is not a word that has any kind of connotation of demeaning or second-class citizen to it. A helper fit for him. One who is a perfect complement, that they complement one another. Man and woman are given the task together to be fruitful and multiply and serve in complementary ways. The old 17th century Puritan, Matthew Henry, put it beautifully when he said it this way. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. I think that's a good way to put it, to try to understand what's going on. So you have to start with the creation, but then the fall. And the fall means everything is broken, as that great prophet Bob Dylan said. We have to take seriously what the Bible teaches about the fall and the mess it has made. And that means the way it is now is not the way it's supposed to be. And part of the challenge in trying to figure out what does it mean to man, what does it mean to be a woman, how are we to relate to one another, is so much of what we're looking at and dealing with is the brokenness of the fall and not necessarily the way it was meant to be. When you look at Genesis 3, and if you want to skip ahead in the Bible to that, Genesis 3, after sin has entered into the world, God asks them a series of questions. And you remember they start blame shifting, right? It's, you know, the, the, the woman that you gave me, God, and then she's like, well, you know. Anyway, they're all blame shifting, right? And, and then God pronounces a curse on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man. Actually, if we had more time, I'd show you, I think the curses actually do give us some hints about what it means to be male and female, because I think they're cursed in, in ways that reflect that. I don't think you can press that too far, but I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 3, verse, 16, or verse 15 and 16, this is what he says to the woman, I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, sorry, speaking of the serpent, I will put enmity between you and and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What's going on here? Well, here, here's what's going on. This is, this is the first act of God's grace in some ways, because what's happened is Adam and Eve have allied themselves with God's enemy against God. And God comes in and says, I will not allow that alliance to stand. Where you have tried to put peace, I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put conflict. I'm going to put 
warfare. And it's going to continue on and on and on, as far as the Bible goes, until the book of Revelation. And the serpent is finally, the dragon, as he's described there, is finally going to be dealt with. Uh, But look at the next verse. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, the ESV says, shall be contrary to your husband. But but most translations say your desire will be for your husband. And it or he, because the Hebrew can be translated either way, will rule over you. Now, now what, this is important. What's going on here? What it's, what it's saying is either Eve's desire will be for her husband and be an over-desire, and he will rule over her, not in a complimentary way, but in an abusive, domineering way, or it, your desire, to rule over your husband will dominate you. And honestly, I think both happen. I think you see both at work in the history of human relationships, male and female. Sometimes an over-dominance, sometimes um, being dominated by. Uh, But it's still not the way it's supposed to be. The brokenness is real. The harmony that God created has been replaced by domination and abuse. The curse is awful, and women have suffered grievously ever since. And the Bible records lots of examples of this. It does. And and this is what I think trips up a lot of people. Because just the fact that the Bible records grievous examples of the way women have been abused and dominated does not mean that the Bible affirms or approves them. The trick is sometimes it doesn't say that right in the context. Again, you need the big picture story. Sometimes they seem like Snape, please, and you need to know the big picture to understand how to, what's actually going on there. And you might really misunderstand it if you take it out of context, like Judges 19. Do you know this story? Maybe some of you have never read this story. I know one professor that loves to bring this story up in his uh, Old Testament introduction classes uh, without necessarily talking about it. It's in Judges 19. Um, There are some messengers, angels, I suppose we think they are, who are in this Levite's house. A Levite is uh, from the priestly tribe, and the the men in the town there, Sodom, want to have those men kicked out of the house so that they can rape them, basically. And the Levite doesn't do that, but instead sends out his concubine. That's a not, there's so many problems with that. <laughs> why, like, why does he have a concubine? He's a Levite. He shouldn't have a concubine. Uh, nonetheless, he sends her out. She does get raped. She's killed. And then what happens? He cuts up her dead body into 12 pieces, sends each of those 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. That is a story that should horrify you. It should. The Bible is not saying... Well, that's kind of just what happens sometimes. No, this is the book of Judges. The theme of the book of Judges is in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes and that's an awful way to live. It's not the way it was supposed to be, right? So the Bible sometimes records brutal examples of how messed up things have gotten. 
that should horrify us and would have horrified any faithful Israelite who read that story. But what about the weird laws? Deuteronomy 22, about what happens uh, if a man rapes someone and then she has to marry the rapist. I don't have time to get into all that, but there are some reasonable, plausible suggestions as to why that might not be the way it appears on the surface. Wendy's got a whole chapter on that in her book, and I encourage you to read it or come tomorrow. We can go into more details. Or Leviticus 15, with talks about bodily fluids and blood and uncleanness, and people are like, okay, this is definitely like weird stuff. You're right. I'll just say a couple things here. And these are some things from Wendy, but other people have said these same kind of things. In some cases, the law is trying to mitigate the awful results of the fall. Jesus said to Israelites, Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. In other words, there are some laws in the Old Testament that are like baby steps trying to stop things from being as bad as they could be, but they aren't the ideal. The creation is the ideal, but sometimes when you just look at the mitigating law, like an eye for an eye, that seems rather harsh. But if the practice in all the surrounding nations is you poke out my eye, I'm gonna take your life, it's limiting revenge. It's not ideal, but it's mitigating some of the effects of all. Some of these weird Old Testament laws seem to fit into that category. It's at least worth considering. Some of the laws, particularly the ones dealing with blood and bodily fluids, have symbolic purpose. The life is in the blood, the Bible says. And the seed line of the woman from Genesis 3.15 is important to remember when you're thinking about the significance of some of these bodily fluids, right? But also remember, this is a world in which they didn't have jails, they didn't have prison, they didn't have sanitation, they didn't have refrigeration. Why can't you eat snail fish? It's not a good idea to eat snail fish in the desert when you don't have refrigeration, right? There's some of these things that make sense. Some of them, though, we look at them, we're like, not sure why this is in here. But these are all temporary, Paul says, like a tutor to lead us to Christ. So don't get don't just sort of get stuck on these without zooming out and seeing the big picture story. Remember, everything in the Bible, almost everything in the Bible is written to broken, sinful people after the fall has made a mess of things. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And along the lines, I'll say this, sinful patriarchy is not good for anybody. It's not good for men or women. I love at the end of the Barbie movie that they bring that out, right? Ken is like, yeah, this wasn't really that much fun. Sometimes getting what you think you want isn't very much fun. The way the Bible says that is there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death, right? However, the most important thing to consider in this topic is how does Jesus treat women? You know why that's the most important thing? Is because Jesus shows us what God is like. John 14, Philip, says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
how can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus was very conscious, very clear that he represented everything God was. And the early church understood that. We just read that from Colossians chapter 1. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. Look at him, you see the Father. And what do you see about God's attitude toward women when you look at the Gospels? Well, there are so many examples of Jesus and how countercultural his approach to women was. I'll just give you a couple. In John chapter 2, this is the woman at the well, Samaritan well, right? Jesus talks, sorry, this is John chapter 4. I don't know why I said John chapter 2. John chapter 4. Jesus talks to the woman, at the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And you remember how the disciples react when they come back and find that he's talking to a woman? They're scandalized. They're kind of freaked out, right? Yet John isn't scandalized in telling this story. He doesn't edit it out of his gospel. In fact, he tells us that she, in many ways, is the very first evangelist. Because she's the one who goes and tells her whole village, tell, let me tell you about a man I met who told me everything that I've ever done. And what's amazing about that is she's done and had done to her some pretty awful things. But she feels no shame after she's been with Jesus to talk about everything she's done. What a remarkable encounter she has had with Jesus. How safe she feels even in talking about who she is and what she's done in light of what she's experienced with him. In Luke chapter seven, you may know this story, the Pharisee Simon invites Jesus over to his house for a meal. And this woman shows up, begins washing his feet with her tears. And what does Jesus do? The Pharisees are all saying, man, if he knew who this woman was and what she's done and what she's like, he was no way he'd be letting her touch him. That's not what Jesus does though. Jesus honors her before everyone present and holds her up as the moral example rather than the Pharisee. That's crazy. John 11, Mary and Martha. Maybe you know this story, but do you notice this? Mary, Mary, Jesus says, chooses the better thing, the better thing, because she wants to sit at Jesus' feet. Now what's remarkable about that? That's what men get to do. Men sit at the feet of a rabbi and learn from them. But Jesus says, Martha, I will not take her away from the spot that you don't think belongs to her. She's chosen the better thing, to sit at my feet like a disciple. It's remarkable. And the resurrection accounts, all four gospels, reveal the women are the first witnesses and the men are slow to believe because they still have some of the prejudices against women thinking that they're more gullible. Rebecca McLaughlin points out all four Gospels make women central to the resurrection claims. Who in the first century does that? Women in that day were not even allowed to testify in a court of law. And yet all four Gospels make women the chief central witnesses of the resurrection. You would edit that out if you were trying to write something to persuade people, but they don't, why? Well, because that's what actually happened. Jesus honored the women by letting them be the ones to first witness it, right? And, and it, it actually caused a lot of people in the early days of the church to sneer at Christianity. The second century Greek, a guy named Celsus, um, said this, 
after death, Jesus rose again. Now he's talking to a Christian apologist. He says, after death, Jesus rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. But who saw this? A hysterical female, as you say, and perhaps some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Like, how can I believe the testimony of a hysterical female? That's the way females' testimony is regarded, and yet the Gospels still make them central witnesses. In fact, many critics dismiss Christianity as a religion of women and slaves. But it's important to ask why the Gospel was so attractive to women and slaves in the first century. Why were so many women attracted to Christianity in the early centuries? As I said, we know that the early church was majority female. While critics like Minucius Felix in the third century said it was Christianity that appealed to, quote, the dregs of the populace and credulous women with the inability natural to their sex, we don't believe that that's why women were attracted to Christianity. There must be some other reason. And this might surprise you. Christian marriage has got to be part of the reason. Now, the reason that may surprise some of you is because the whole thing about submission seems like a big part of the problem and a big barrier. But I hope you understand, submission is not just for women in marriage. I, I remember uh, my friend Paige Benton, when she was an REF intern, um, she met with her campus minister. This is like four campus ministers ago at Vanderbilt. She used to be an intern there. And um, he's like, Paige, Paige, I think I finally understand it. I think the essence of woman is submission. And, and she's like, Hal? That was his name, Hal. She goes, submission is a Christian characteristic, not a female Christian, not a female characteristic. And, and that's why in Ephesians 5, listen, I love doing weddings. I'd love to do your wedding one day. It, 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 but if you ask me to do your wedding and you want us to read Ephesians chapter 5, I will not read it unless we start with verse 20. Because verse 20 says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Then, verse 21, wives, submit to your husbands. If you cut off verse 21 by ver and verse 20, like unfortunately most English translations do with their subheadings that are silly and don't belong in the text, you really misunderstand the point of that passage. And I refuse to just start with wives submit to your husbands, taken out of context. Submission is actually a Christian characteristic. And I hope you saw that in that song that we sang, Sweet Comfort, Whatever My God Ordains is Right. That's a hard song to sing. It's a hard song to sing. But that's a Christian confession. Submit to one another, right? But... To understand what the Bible has to say about women and what God thinks about them, like I said, we need to see the whole story, the love story across difference, and that means we have to talk about the marriage metaphor. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin puts it so well. She says, this is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ in the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ in the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ in the church, it is a flesh-uniting, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. And let's not forget, Christian marriage was countercultural from the first. In the Greco-Roman world, no one expected to be faithful to their wives. 
let alone to pour themselves out in sacrificial love for their wives. Far from being the epicenter of misogyny, Christianity is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. Why doesn't it feel like it, though? How far we've often departed from what the Bible teaches about these things. And that brings us to a couple last points. Hold on, you might say. Why does the Bible talk about sons and not sons and daughters in Galatians 5? Seems weird, doesn't it? The reason is because of Roman law. In Roman law, adopted sons had a status that daughters and even natural-born sons did not have. And in Galatians 5, where Paul talks about adoption as the highest, under, uh, highest sort of privilege that comes to us who are united to Christ, he uses this language to express the kind of security that all of God's children have in Christ. But it's not a metaphor or an image that works in the first century if you say daughters. Again, because of the brokenness of the world and the way women did not have the same security. Now, you might say, well, that's, you know, that's kind of hard. Like, we have to think of ourselves as sons of God all the guys in the room have to think of themselves as the bride of Christ. Nobody gets to merely think through their own gendered experience for what it means to have a God who loves them, okay? Now, I thought it was interesting. We were singing Sands of Time. Now, that was turned into a poem. The, 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 those words actually come from a man. All that stuff about the bride and the bridegroom and how lovely he is, that was all written by a man named Samuel Rutherford. While he was suffering in prison, he wrote these letters to his church because he couldn't preach to them because he was in prison for his faith. And then a lady in the 19th century, Ann Cousins, turned it into a poem and then it was set to music and it became a hymn. But that, you know, I, I love that, that, that this man, Samuel Rutherford, Puritan, who you often think is kind of stodgy, um, so resonated with that language that he wrote those beautiful letters, right? But what about, last, last point, what about First Timothy 2? and women not being allowed to teach, and women pastors, right? I, now, I cannot talk about everything about this, but I'm just gonna give it a quick shot, okay? Um, and then come talk to me tomorrow, we can talk more. And, and the first thing I wanna say is, and I, I put this passage on your, on your, your thing there too. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's this, it's in 1 Timothy chapter two, I'll just read um, verse eight and nine. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, almost everything in that section is debated and confusing. I'm going to just say a couple things. Some people, when they come upon this passage, they say it's not really relevant. They say it's not relevant because we don't believe Paul actually wrote 2 Timothy 
or the other pastoral epistles. I think the case for that is weak. I think the case for that is weak. Often those arguments are made based on the vocabulary and the style of the Greek of First, Second Timothy and Titus, but we don't have enough of a sample size to make definitive judgments about Paul's style and the words he would have used, plus the topics are different, so he would have used different words, plus we don't know how much allowance scribes had to choose their own words. So, so I, I think that case is weak, and the testimony of the early church to Pauline authorship is strong. So, so I'm, I'm not persuaded that that's a very strong argument. I think we've got to deal with it differently. So then others have said, well, perhaps there's some problem going on in Ephesus where Timothy is that Paul feels he has to be a little more restrictive than he normally would have been. Or maybe even Paul reverted back to his rabbinic chauvinism and he kind of forgot what he wrote in Galatians 5 where he says in Christ there is neither male nor female or Jew or Greek, right? Well, I don't think there's anything in the context that makes us think that he's dealing with a local or temporary situation. He lays down all through chapter two rules that he lays down in all the churches and he roots this thing he's saying about women teaching in the created order not in some result or some problem. So I'm not persuaded by that view either, though there are many people who have a very high view of the Bible that take that view, okay? You can, have, you can believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture and disagree on this point, and there are a lot of people that do. And you certainly don't have to agree with the way I read this to be part of RUF and to be welcome here, okay? I'm just gonna tell you what I think. Um, but then there's, an, there's another view, and I think this one is more plausible. It's the most plausible one I've heard. I'm still not persuaded by it, but it's this. Remember I said, Jesus said to, that uh, Moses permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. So we know we have examples of things that are not the ideal. Great example is slavery. You can't read Paul's letter to Philemon and think that he was supportive of slavery, yet he doesn't call on Christians to abolish it outright. And so many have said he's laying the seeds for the overthrow. And it is true that it was really Christians who led the abolitionist movement, right? Because they understood the full teaching of the Bible, not that all Christians saw that and agreed, okay? Um, so is it possible that Paul is not able to say what he wants to say about women's roles yet? and yet is laying in Galatians 5 the seed for eventually when it's more culturally possible for men and women to be seen as equal in their roles in the church. I think that's plausible. I'm not persuaded by it, okay? Uh, what do I think? Here's, I'll just tell you what I think. I think that the word translated or should be translated and. It is the Greek word chi. And if you translate it that way, it, 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 I think is very helpful because then you realize he's not restricting all teaching of all women over all men everywhere in every context. If he was, and when you translate it or the way this ESV does, then you don't have an explanation for how Paul, or sorry, Apollos can be discipled by Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. Seems to be a violation of what he's saying here. But if what he's talking about here is and, he's talking about a particular kind of authoritative teaching, then I, I think that that's the way I understand it, and I can't get around it. Um, I don't feel at liberty to just say, sorry, I don't like this. Uh, but I also recognize that's a really hard thing in our day and age. Part of the reason is because we often equate role with value. The Bible never does that. 
The Bible doesn't say, if you can't have the same role, you have less value. But that's a really hard sell in our day and age because we just don't see things that way. Um, but then the weird thing about the woman, uh, she, was, she was deceived. Does that make it seem like she's more gullible? I, a lot of people have taken it that way. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I actually think what he's saying is she was deceived, but Adam has no such excuse. He knew full well. He knew full well. And of course, Paul, in Romans 5, you find it's through Adam's sin that all humankind are sinners, not through Eve. And then there's this interesting thing about childbirth. What the heck is going on there? Does this mean that if you don't have children that you're not gonna be saved? Some have said maybe this is a way, a first century way of saying women, just do your duty and shut up. I don't think he's saying that either. I actually think it's a beautiful example of poetic justice and the way the big picture story can help us. If you've ever been to our house or if you come to our house on Saturday, you should use our bathroom and see this painting that my wife has a print of <laughs> in, uh, in our downstairs bathroom. It's called Mary Comforts Eve. You can Google it, you can look it up. It was painted by uh, a nun up in Kentucky. And um, it, it's beautiful. And here's what, here's what it gets at. Just as woman took the lead in the garden and it led to tragedy. God doesn't leave it there. Instead, he so honors women that it's through a woman that the hope of the world will be born. Because when it says childbearing, that's a definite article with a participle. Literally, it's the childbearing, which can be translated as an abstraction, childbearing, but I think should be translated the childbirth, and it's a reference to that one preeminent childbirth. And it's a story about even though tragedy came through the woman being deceived, life is going to come through the woman and through the childbirth. I think it's a poetically beautiful thing. Sometimes the big picture story helps us understand the weird passages, and I think that's a great example. Well, uh, I, I, I posted a quote from Dorothy Sayers I was going to uh, use at the very end. I'm not going to use it now because we're running out of time, but I did put it on the group me. I'll just say this about Dorothy Sayers. She is a character, man. I don't know if you know about Dorothy. She was part of the Inklings, so she was friends with Tolkien and Lewis. She was the only woman in that group, and uh, she actually was a more popular author than either of those guys at the time, and yet a lot of people don't know about her. She wrote an amazingly hilarious and poignant book called Are Women Human? in 1938 gave an address and then in the 40s a bunch of her essays got put together. It's well worth reading that essay, Are Women Human? It's very snarky, it's, um, it's very witty, it's awesome. And, um, and I think she points out like, when you look at Jesus, well I'll just read the first part of it because it's so good. She, she says, um, you know, when you look at Jesus, this is how she says this. She says, perhaps it's no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross, they had never known a man like this man. There never has been another. A prophet and a teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless us. You can tell she's a British right in 1938, right? Who, re who rebuked without quarrelousness and praised without condescension. 
a man who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. That's why the church has always been majority women. And if it's not a welcoming place for women, then we've got a lot to repent of. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing.